This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Giordano. For 11 years, he has served as the mental health commissioner for Albany County. It's not an easy job. The work took on new dimensions over the last two years as the pandemic, with isolation-inducing restrictions, caused more mental health problems. A licensed psychologist, he was a philosophy major in college and takes a philosophical approach to his work, finding the humanity in the people he helps. Some of the questions that are dealt with historically in philosophy are about how to live, what's right, what's fair, what does suffering mean, he says. He has become a familiar face and a calm voice in troubling times. As we've been coping with the pandemic, he was a familiar guest on County Executive Dan McCoy's once daily press conferences, and um, he is the Albany County Commissioner of Mental Health. So welcome. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm very glad to be talking with you. Well, what inspired me to ask you is this wonderful piece you wrote for us, and our readers can see it in our next edition. And in it, you said there are two important truths that often get overlooked or denied. So let's just start by hearing what those two truths are. Yeah, well, it is, it is, it's presumptuous to think these are the only truths, but (laughs) (laughs) there are at least two. I I think I I was speaking, I was thinking about what we've been through collectively as a, as a community, as a state, as a country and, and, um, you know, coming out of the darkness of, of uh, hopefully out of the darkness of, of the COVID couple of years. And, uh, the two truths were that we are are more resilient than we probably ever imagined. You never know how strong you are until you're tested. Uh, but I think we're more vulnerable than we could ever have imagined as well. And, um, you know, the, the, even if we're out of the woods, so to speak, with the physical elements of, of the pandemic, I think we're still living with and will be for a while the, the mental health effects. So I think those were the two truths you might be referring to. Yes, and I think they're so important because when you were at the press conferences, you often paired those things. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to think as a human being, we have to recognize our vulnerabilities, but also see that we can draw on our resilience to try to cope with things. Um, In your letter, you also write that one in five people will experience a diagnosable mental health condition in any given year. And that is rather stunning. And I think probably even before the pandemic. Yes. um, Was that a statistic that was relevant then? So now perhaps it's become even more so is yeah, yes, indeed. I think that's a good observation on your part that, you know, statistics often uh, they're helpful in terms of highlighting 
other truths, but they're also used and manipulated. And I often often um, try not to rely too much on them. But this particular uh, data point is one that existed before the COVID pandemic, and it's one that the CDC has kind of referred to and and is tied to. I, I think our topic that we're talking about today, because we're all implicated in one way or another in in uh, struggling to make it through not only the pandemic, but obviously our lives. And and uh, one in five, it is it is thought, will experience a significant mental health challenge at, at some point in their life. And they, they, the CDC says in the next calendar year, but... I think you're absolutely right that the, that's probably a, a larger number now that we've been through what we've been through. And I think it's probably a worse statistic or a higher yes. number yes. in some groups. I know um, in December, the United States Surgeon General put out an advisory about youth. Mm-hmm. And similarly, he had all kinds of statistics showing how bad the numbers were before for things like suicide and depression and anxiety yeah. among our youth and how much worse his report came out with just data from the first year of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And for instance, the suicide uh, visits to emergency rooms for girls had gone up over 50%. So, I mean, I guess... You cannot have all the answers. You're one person. But what are some of the things that the county is doing? And then I'm going to go down the list and see if there are things organizations can be doing, like schools or civic organizations. And then finally, what things can we as individuals do? So let's start with the county. What kinds of things are in the works there? Well, well, let me first say, Melissa, thank you for not asking me to solve all of the problems. (laughs) That's, that's too big a, a, a lift. Um, and, and quite frankly, I'm very willing and, and happy to answer your question. But I, I want to say that I think that part of the point of my letter was this is Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, I think what's important to me about this. Well, first of all, it's like it's like birthdays. You shouldn't be nice to people only on their birthdays. Right. You should be nice to them all the time. You shouldn't only think about mental health and 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 mental health awareness mental health month and the reason i think i I wanted to call attention i'm so grateful that you were receptive to the letter is that uh you know yes there there's this tendency to kind of focus on these horrible numbers but most of the time we think it's happening to them other people those folks who for whatever reason are but my the point of, of of my wanting to write what i did was to suggest that we are implicated, all of us in this together. To be human is to be challenged, and um, and uh, we can get into that later. But I, I think that that I, I don't want to steer us into talking about all of those poor people who have mental health challenges. We all have mental health challenges. I love that approach. I just yeah. think it's central to your whole philosophy because you. You and the United States Surgeon General point out that one of the biggest problems is the stigma. And if we have an us versus them kind of attitude, it's their problem, not our problem. That just fosters a stigma. It absolutely does. It makes us feel falsely that we are somehow 
not uh, touched by any of this. And of course, uh, not looking within and, and, and thinking it's in some, you know, someone else's problem actually makes our problems worse because, you know, um, if the more we deny and, and look away, the less we're able to deal with the things that we have to deal with in our lives. And you mentioned the county exec, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't just acknowledge the fact that, you know, I do this because I have the, the, the I, I've been kind of blessed by giving the opportunity to, to work for the county in this capacity for the last 11 years as as commissioner. But this month, we just started uh, at the at the county exec's direction, a, a year-long video series, and we're calling it, we're all on this together. And and uh, we're trying to, to, you know, bring in community voices of all different types uh, and, and to just talk about, uh, how, how, you know, we are all somehow uh, in this and struggling together, but that we're stronger together. And um, uh, anyway, so I, that, that's one of the things the county is doing now. And we're trying to add some positive energy back into the world at a time when I think we could use as much of that as, as possible. I agree. And that that slogan, we're all in this together, is one that Mr. McCoy uses constantly. He has this sense of that. And I know he was instrumental with you in setting up right from the start of the pandemic that hotline for help and other initiatives. And um, I I looked up a story that was back in May 2020. when you were at one of those press conferences and you were talking about um, a team that predated by years the pandemic, um, the emergency disaster mental health response team. Yes. And you said, you know, God forbid we had a plane crash at the airport and there were yeah. 60 or more fatalities. Mm-hmm. Um, our mental health disaster team would be deployed. We'd set up a family support center. We'd work with families dealing with loss and grief. And at that time, you pointed out there had been 60 deaths in the county from COVID. And now, wait for it, it just came in today, uh, there are 557 <laughs> deaths yeah. caused by the pandemic. Yeah, so just tell us a little about this team and what it does and how you work. Well, yeah, I, I'd be glad to. You know, I, I, I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. I'm, I, I'm so glad that you actually listened uh, as carefully as you do to what we were saying, I, I, I often, you know, wondered at those press conferences, you know, it got to be almost so much, you know, every day more. And, and, and I could just see how I, actually, even at those press conferences, I would tell people, you know, stop watching the news some, you know, or, or at least temper how much grave news you let into your life, because that in and of itself leads to, you know, some sort of, of, challenges from a mental health standpoint, but I, I'm grateful for the fact that you and your team would always reflect accurately what we were saying. And, and um, I think that matters a, a great deal, but I remember that day very vividly because, uh, well, I remember even before that, when we were thinking, well, maybe this won't touch Albany, you know, and oh, well, there's a case in New York, maybe it won't touch Albany. And then we had a case in Albany and well, it can't be too bad. And look where we are. I mean, it just, and what we've kind of accepted as almost normal now, uh, it's really staggering. And, and, um, uh, but yes, I did 
uh, talk about that then. We, we, before this even was on our radar, we developed uh, an emergency disaster mental health team made up of, of, of a number of our uh, clinicians in our department and, and non-clinicians, all of whom have, were committed to and wanting to respond, God forbid, in, in a community kind of disaster. And we define disaster pretty broadly. We've responded to, with the Red Cross, to uh, fires in the community where people have, you know, significant numbers of people have lost their residences. And we've tried to provide whatever assistance uh, we can. We even have people on our team who, who date back to 9-11, who went down to New York and and, you know, they're mental health professionals, but they ended up giving out bottles of water. But sometimes that's all you can do and that's all you need. And 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 still, that's what people need. Uh, but we deployed those folks to our, our hotline for almost a year and a half. We're not, we still have emergency services that we provide, but we we turned off the hotline number a number of months ago because it just seemed like people were finding out how resilient they in fact were, and they were learning how to cope better. And we were just not getting that many people who were in, in kind of an emotional distress. Doesn't mean it still wasn't affecting people, you know, negatively, but we weren't using that resource as much, but yeah, we, we, um, I remember when I said that, because I thought that, uh, you know, if we lost 60 people in a plane crash, we would see that as, you know, a, a need to respond to those grieving families and we offered the phone line in the same way as, you know, this is somewhere where you could at least start the process of, of understanding and grieving the loss of, of, you know, people in our community, our loved ones, our family members. Um, it's really amazing for you to recall, re, kind of remember that moment. Yeah. Because I do vividly and um, we've come a long way since then, boy. But two things you said have led me to other questions. One is this idea that it's now almost become normalcy. And is there any danger in that? It looks to me like from reading the, re the most recent research, the reinfection rate is so high. And even when people have been vaccinated, which is a good thing to do <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because you don't get as severely ill, you can get sick again, and it looks like it might just be an ongoing phenomenon we have to live with rather than this original idea that we were going to get yeah. vaccinated and be better. And so mentally, how do we adjust to that? Do you have any yeah. advice there? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I do. I suppose I should have some advice, but um, I will tell you that I get back to the resiliency and the vulnerability. Yeah question. I, and, and I defer to my uh, esteemed colleague, Dr. Whalen, who the, the public health commissioner, who uh, did a lot more news conferences than I did. And I think she has something to say about this as well. The danger is complacency. And, and I think from, you know, on a physical level, uh, we just kind of, this is kind of passe now. And, and uh, oh yeah, pandemic. Oh yeah, masks. Oh yeah. You know, uh, Hopefully, um, if I didn't get it by now, I will I'll never get it. And I think that's there's danger in that. Um, from a mental health standpoint, I, I think that um, looking away, looking away, which I guess can be termed denial, is always a danger, and it could it could be a, anything. But yeah, denying that we're still vulnerable uh, can lead to yeah, it, that's a dangerous position to be in. But living in a heightened state of 
of um, you know uh, alert and and feeling of danger is also unhealthy, and that's why I think that we've you know we've been tested in ways we never thought we would be, and we're stronger than we ever thought we could be, but we're by no means out of the woods. And I think what does that mean? I think that means that we have to attend on a daily basis to our mental and physical health, and our, the mental and physical health of those in our sphere our loved ones, our coworkers, our friends, our family. And that was, again, back to the point of the, the letter. I just thought this in Mental Health Awareness Month might be a time to remind people of, you know, it's it's not them, it's us. No, <laughs> it's a very good reminder. Another thing that you mentioned in passing in the conversation earlier was hmm. this idea of, uh, almost a wariness of the bad news constantly coming yeah. at you. And yeah. certainly now, in addition to the COVID news, we have the war in Ukraine playing out anytime we pick up a phone and want to look or have a screen. And I just wonder if you have any mental health advice for, um, it seems to me, and I am not a mental health expert, but in the human experience, if you look back through the millennia, you know, as humans, we used to be able to see danger that we could actually do something about. And now we experience it from such a distance that we're almost helpless. I mean, is there any kind of advice on how to cope with that mentally? Yeah, yeah well, I would say, but to add to what you're saying, we're also spoon-fed at 24-7. And I think, you know, that's that's also very different just as last generation or two. Um, yeah, see, I, it's an interesting question to ask me because I, I've been called a news junkie and I can't get enough of the news. And you could probably come up with some explanation psychologically about that, but I'd never want to be caught unawares uh, about things that might be happening locally or nationally or on the, across the world. But I did say in those news conferences, and I'll say again in answer to this question, you really have to pace yourself. And, and when the death count, whether it's COVID or Ukraine or mass shootings in Buffalo or wherever the, 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 this this you know constant flooding of 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 trauma is coming uh, we can only take so much of that and i think that you have to really pace yourself with uh with that and when those numbers become like they're reporting sports scores you know mm -hmm. and i remember saying that at one of the news conferences you know you watch cnn or whatever station you prefer and they've got in the corner the count of mm -hmm. the deaths it's, it's like, you know, it's like the stock market. It just, it, just, it, it numbs us. And I think um, being aware of, of the need to uh, just do good things for ourselves. Yeah, you have to stay up with the news, I believe. I think ignoring it is just as bad, but um, you, you, you have to do things to counter that. I, I've, I've come up recently with um, a great new, I never knew about this, but uh, I've heard research about taking a nature bath. <laughs> and I heard that psychologists in Canada uh, are actually prescribing uh, uh, walks in the national park. And uh, I, I think that's a good, uh, in answer to your question of what we can do, I would say take a walk in the forest. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that because that's yeah. advice anybody can follow. It doesn't cost anything. Absolutely. It's available. And yeah, I've read research. Yeah. I think there's a name for it in, in Japan. Yeah. yeah. I can't think what it is, though. But well, I, I've heard this idea of, of a nature of a forest bath or a nature bath. Yeah. And, you know. Um, that should that should be something we all do. <laughs> well, another group that seems to have been particularly hard hit, uh, besides the youth, are uh, people who struggle with addictions, um, yes, yes, with yes. alcohol and with drugs, um, and the pandemic during the shutdown phase, you know, had us all isolated. And I wonder, both on a county level, um, mm -hmm. what's happening to to cope with that, but also, again, you've been so good about telling us individual helps. Um, do you have any any mm -hmm. advice on that sure. front? Sure. <clears throat> well, you know, your your intuition and your observations are correct on this, folks um, who have been struggling with addiction. Many of them found this to be. Uh, a challenge that may have, you know, people who are in recovery from addiction, many people found the challenges, you know, too much and, and a lot of folks relapsed. A lot of folks who were, you know, managing their substance use, it, it got worse and, and, and many people who weren't addicted maybe became addicted as a result. And then some people who just, you know, needed a, a, another coping mechanism might have started doing things that they had never done before. So I think in general, as I say, your intuition and your observation is is correct. The, the numbers uh, across the board increased in, in on the addiction side. The addiction treatment world in Albany County, I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. We have we have a, a, a very rich array of, of addiction services in Albany County. That's the good news. The bad news is they're all full. Um, you know, we have, last I checked, we have um, at least 2,500 people in outpatient addiction treatment in Albany County. That's mayor, and I don't know if that surprises you or not, but that's a pretty large number of people who are struggling. I think the good news about those 2,500 people is that they, you know, we talk about the overdoses and the fatalities associated with overdose. Those 2,500 people are still alive today and they're in treatment and, and they're working, you know, as best they can to, to, to get a, a stable sense of, of recovery in their lives. But we have seen overdose fatalities rise precipitously in the last two years. And, and you know, that's it's not unique to Albany County. Uh, it's no, it's, it's no, it's a small comfort or no small comfort, I guess, that the numbers reflect what's going on statewide and, and nationally. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we are working harder than ever trying to um, uh, help folks who are, are um, struggling with addiction. You asked me, Melissa, earlier about county programs. Can I mention yeah, two? Sure. Yes, know, of course. Two things that are, are unique in the last year or two. Uh, one of them uh, is, is, is addiction related. We have a, um, we have an overdose survivor response team that is a mobile team of, of, of folks who go out into the community uh, after people who have, uh, you know, thankfully lived through an overdose. And we follow up 
at their door. Sometimes they tell us to go away. Sometimes they tell us to come back next week. Sometimes they welcome us into their home. But we are trying to follow up in real time with people to try to give them supports, to make sure they have Narcan, to give them uh, linkages to treatment. And uh, we're working right now with two local law enforcement agencies, the Gilderland PD and the Colony PD, uh, to try to be a community resource to folks who have thankfully lived through uh, most often an opiate overdose, but it doesn't have to be. It's some sort of drug overdose. That's one program. And, and the other is, is something specific to the Hill Towns, which I think you wrote us up pretty well a year or two, a year or so ago, a program that is, is um, co-sponsored by the Albany County Sheriff, the County Executive, and the County Legislature, we respond. We, we we heard from all of the police reform uh, discussions that were happening a year and two years ago about how, although my words here, not anyone else's, the police are necessary often in crisis response. They're not always essential, and we're trying to learn how to respond to psychiatric and mental health emergencies with um, uh, social workers and in, in this case of this program with sheriff's department paramedics. And uh, we've, we're piloting this in the hill towns and we've been up and running for better part of a year, well, actually six months, six to eight months. And, uh, you know, law enforcement is critical. Sometimes we need them. Sometimes they're there first. Uh, but uh, we're able to respond and uh, hopefully de-escalate a situation in the community without the need of law enforcement to stay involved. And uh, our hope is to not only minimize the role of law enforcement so they could do other law enforcement work, <laughs> but also to d resolve mental health crisis in the community so folks don't need to go to the hospital uh, if, if that can be prevented. So we're piloting that. We're hoping to look to expand through other aspects of the county, but that's up and running right now in the Hilltowns. And in those six to eight months, how how has it been working? Has it actually de-escalated situations? Yeah. And well, one of the benefits, you know, you learn as you go, and, and um, you just can't throw money at problems, although money can't hurt. Uh, I think Woody Allen said that years ago, money isn't everything, but it can't hurt. Um, uh, you know, what we've figured out now is if we're going to start a new program, we should develop some research component right at the beginning, instead of looking a year or two down the road and say, oh, how did we do? We're partnering also, not only sheriff, county executive and legislature, but with UAlbany right. and their School of Public Health and Social Welfare those two departments are lending their students and their expertise and their research acumen. And we have been studying this as we go. And, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. I would say that um, it is it is a success, but we've learned things that we wouldn't have learned until we started. And that is, gee, you know, you have to really train the dispatch folks to really be able to hear on a call maybe what what is really at play and help them not feel like they have to send the police for everything. Um, that's one thing. The other is, is that, um, you know, the police often are, are the first ones on the scene, whether we like it or not. And, and how do we, how do we then make them feel comfortable that they could, they could move, they could leave once we get there. 
But in fact, the numbers, I think, are, are reflecting a positive trend that we're able to um, uh, de-escalate things in the community. And, and uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the right outcome is taking someone to the hospital. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not always the case that we can we can resolve things in the community. But the word is getting out. The program is called Accord. And um, we are, you know, you could call 911 in the in in the hill towns and if you have a mental health emergency they will screen the call for the accord team to go out and we're we're um you know a couple of probably 400 calls already in the last six to eight months and uh we also are able to do follow-up the next day so we'll try to make sure that if any linkages to doctors or hospitals were required that they happen this is just an outgrowth of our mobile crisis team which has been operating in the county for more than 30 years. We were the first in the state to develop a, a mobile crisis team 24-7. And, um, you know, we, we know how to do it, but we're trying to learn how to do it without front-loading it with police. And um, it's, it's still a learning process. I think, though, to answer your question, I think it's promising and we've been successful so far. That's great. Well, you mentioned correctly that the drug problem is not unique to Albany County, and another problem that is not unique to Albany County that similarly existed before the pandemic but seems to have gotten much worse is the violence, particularly the mm-hmm. gun violence. <laughs> and I wonder if you have ideas on the mental health component with that. I looked up some research by Randolph Roth, who argues that crime increases. He's looked back at 400 years of history of crime, that crime increases if people lose trust in society's institutions and basic fairness. It's this idea of alienation that that leads to that. Do you does that fit with your idea of what is yeah. happening in a mental health sense when there's so much more gun violence or violent crime? Yeah. Well, see, there, there's so many moving pieces in this as well, Melissa. I, you know, I, I want to stay in my lane. I'm not a sociologist. Okay. Right. Or a I don't want to take you out of your lane, well, but I just that, wondered if there was a component of mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly have an opinion, though. I just wanted okay. to say that that um, because I'm not either a historian or a sociologist, it's only an opinion um, that you can take take for what it's worth. Uh, There's a couple of things here that I think are important. You know, this gets back to stigma, I think, as well. So I'll work my way into answering your question more directly. Um, You know, the relationship with mental health, illness, and crime, I think, is one that on the surface, we often, when we think about us and them, you know, even the language that we use to describe mentally ill people uh, is often derogatory. It often assumes that, um, you know, you see headlines. And you know, I grew up in New York City. I remember the New York Post, who was famous for their headlines, you know, you know, lunatics or crazed gunmen or, or all these assumptions that if you do a crime, especially if it's a heinous crime, you must have been, um, uh, uh, you know, mentally ill. In fact, I think the data is pretty clear on this. Mental, mentally ill people, people living with mental illness, are less, are more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime. And I think we have to start there. Um, 
uh, I think the data supports that. My experience supports that. I think it's still a hard sell. The fact of the matter is, though, there are some complicating factors. People with un untreated mental illness are, are often the folks that are in some of those headlines. Um, you know, so the, the mental illness itself doesn't cause crime, but I think untreated mental illness combined with addiction makes people more volatile, reactive, and likely to be involved in maybe some criminal activities. Uh, so I think those are, that's a subtle distinction. I think it's important to me because just because you're mentally ill doesn't at all predispose you for crime. Having said that, um, there is something going on in our society these days. And um, I will just say, even given what just we just saw in Buffalo, um, I, I cringe when I, I hear the coverage because it immediately goes to mental health. Uh, and I saw a great, someone said this, I don't know who it was, but I, I reacted initially like I thought this was right. Hate is not a mental illness. There's no diagnosis category for, you know, hate. And, and I think that to assume that hateful people, uh, whatever their color, creed, or stripe, uh, must be mentally ill. I don't know if that's true. And if, if it's not true, then that means that the solution is not just going to be a mental health solution. So having said all of that, your, your comment about um, lack of trust in society and, and not feeling safe. And I, I have to say that instinctually that makes sense to me that if we are alienating and isolating and, and stigmatizing and discriminating against uh, portions of our community, that's going to come with a cost. And I think that it may be one of those costs may very well be violence. And I, I will say, say the last thing, uh, I think people who cause other people pain are very likely in pain themselves. And so whether that's mental illness or not, uh, it's, you know, pain is pain, right? So, I mean, you could probably, I, I think the, it, this points to the fact that whatever remedies we come up with, I think we have to attend to the, to the mental health uh, needs of our community and of people who are feeling that the only choice they have is to act out in a way that causes other people pain. But I guess I just wanted to make that distinction. That doesn't mean everyone who shoots someone is mentally ill. I'm so glad you made that distinction because I certainly didn't mean to further that stereotype, which oh, I, I can think, see I, is very harmful. Did, I no, think I think that's might. very, very important. And I thank you. And our time has gone so fast. I wanted to hear about you. Can we just hear a bit? You said you grew up in New York City. Yeah. How, how did you choose this path in life? I mean, yeah. what a difficult path you're walking. All right. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you the quick version. Okay. Yeah. So um, I grew up in New York City. I'm proud to say because there's still you can't take the city out of the like they say you can't take the country out of the whatever you can't take the city out of me I still my heart is in the city and I love the city although I'm glad I live outside of the city <laughs> um, I, I went to, I'm the beneficiary of the New York State um, uh, University system I went to um, 
uh, SUNY Binghamton for my undergraduate degree. And I was a philosophy major, not a psychology major. But um, I think back in the day, uh, I realized pretty quickly, you probably wasn't going to make a living as a philosopher. But uh, you can't take the philosophy out of me either. No, and I think, that oh. makes, I have a, like a bell going off in my head because you, you have such a philosophical approach to your job. That's fascinating. Well, I think, yeah, I think I'll take that as a compliment. Yes. Um, uh, but I think some of the, interestingly, some of the questions that are dealt with historically in philosophy are about how to live, what's right, what's fair, what does suffering mean, all those kinds of things um, are what we deal with every day in the community um, county government and in mental health. And so I think it's, uh, you know, quite connected, but I'm a licensed psychologist. I've practiced um, in private practice up until the time I became commissioner 11 years ago. I taught at U Albany and Sage uh, for many years in addiction, actually, that was my area of specialty that I taught. And um, I still like what I do. I still think it's important although that's a daily struggle sometimes because things have gotten pretty rough these days, Melissa, and as you know, and, and, um, you know, we're, we're up against it. And, uh, so, you know, I'm not going to quit yet, but, um, still got a couple of years left in me. So, hopefully. yeah, when you get up in the morning, what keeps you at it? What makes you say, okay, I'm going to go into work today and fight this good oh, fight. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's usually, um, it's usually not in the morning that I, I ask the question. It's usually like End of the four day. o'clock. Actually, it's about this time. We're coming up on it now. On a Friday afternoon, <laughs> because every week is challenging in ways that I, you can't predict. And there's a lot of people in our community who are suffering. And and at the end, by the end of the week, it's not clear that everyone was helped in the way that they should have and could have. And so I always, you know, worry about, are we making a difference? And am I going to read about this in the paper tomorrow? And what could we have done differently? And, but yeah, I, I, I you know, I seem to be able to rejuvenate pretty well. And so I, I think that um, I work with great people actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as the boss, I depend on having, you know, skilled and talented people around me. So in some ways my job is easy, although I get, reported to all the stuff that everyone else hasn't been able to solve and it's a headache, but we've got, we've got a lot of services. We've got a lot of clinicians. We've got a mobile crisis team, a jail unit, a clinic, an addictions clinic, uh, we're, and all these great people working in you know, helping folks. And I depend on them. And that's what makes me feel like, you know, we'll get through it today. Excellent. Well, I'm going to end where we began. You said at the start, you were going to comment on this. To be human <laughs> is to be challenged. So yeah. let's just hear your thoughts on that as a sign, a sign off to leave people with. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, listen, first of all, let me just say this has been wonderful. And, and um, anytime you want to have this discussion, whether we're podcasting or not, I'd be glad to. Uh, uh, so I think that, you know, to me, I, I wrote in the letter, the solution to the mental health challenges we're facing is not funding, it's stigma. And the way you deal with stigma is to realize that that we're all in this together and to see in the other yourself is how you develop empathy and compassion. And that's something we don't have enough of. And I think in, 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 a, in not a small way, uh, empathy and compassion is based in recognizing that we all have 
challenges, sometimes greater, sometimes smaller, uh, sometimes chronic, sometimes acute, but we all have them. And by accepting that and accepting those in our lives who have those challenges, I think we're able to have um, more understanding and compassion. And, and to me, that leads to a peaceful day. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, listen, it's been great. Um, um, thank you for uh, reading my letter. <laughs> <laughs>